Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. I am your host, Sierra Cobb. Black Light Mass Incarceration Show is a space that is used to uplift the unheard voices of the criminal and social justice issues that many face today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Thank you for being on the Black Light Mass Incarceration Show. I have a special guest with me this morning, and I will let her introduce herself. Uh, hey, folks, I'm Alexandra Bailey. I am the senior campaign strategist at The Sentencing Project. Thank you so much for being on here. Um, I want you to come on here today to just kind of speak about um, The Sentencing Project and the work that you guys do to try to change the narrative of the carceral system all over the United States and just go from there. Oh, well, this is going to be a hundred part series then. Um, <laughs> That's fine. I'm sure the show would love it. I mean, look, Game of Thrones was was nothing compared to that. Uh, so, I mean, for the last 30 years, the Sentencing Project has been at sort of the vanguard of research and advocacy around our nation's carceral issues. We were writing and researching this before it was cool. The unfortunate thing that uh, we came to the unequivocal conclusion of is that mass incarceration is very real. It is massively driven by racism and sexism and many other isms. It is attached to and part of our nation's greatest failures in terms of policy. Worse than that, it seems to be a failed policy that we refuse to let go of. And because of that, we have harmed and taken many, many lives in the name of accountability, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Most definitely. So, um, the fact that the United States for so many years has used body autonomy to get to where they are, because we know slavery is what incarceration is, and we know that a lot of our incarcerated folks are working for change to provide a lot of things that I don't think people think about, like clothing. Toilet paper? Toilet paper, clothing. They make your glasses. Like if you're on Medicaid, they make the glasses. They make all of our state signs. I mean, license. Or in, in, in a state like Oregon, where they had ballot 19 that requires all incarcerated people to work at least 40 hours a week. Making what? Not even options. Maybe like I think the highest paid incarcerated person I know makes 40 bucks a month. And that's ridiculous because what can you really buy off of 40 bucks a month when you have canteen? Well, if you've ever taken a look at a commissary list and the prices on it, the answers are not much. And I think a lot of people don't realize that when you go to prison, in a lot of prisons, you are given one roll of toilet paper a month. And the rest you have to provide for yourself. If you want shower shoes, if you want something other than shoes that will kill your body, you have to pay for all of that. I was actually up at Attica not that long ago, late last year. And one of the things during the Attica uprising, which happened in the 1970s, where due to a technical failure, the, the prisoners were able to take over an, a part of Attica prison called D-Block. And they used it as a political moment to make demands for better conditions. And one of the things that they demanded was that they wanted to stop the use of the buckets. And what that means is 
people at Attica were given one bucket of warm water to wash their clothes themselves, their cell in every day. So you got this one bucket of warm water. And if your toilet wasn't flushing, then that's also what you needed it for. So I'm meeting with somebody at Attica, modern day, right? We're 50 years later. And uh, I asked him what job he did at the prison. And he said, well, I handle the buckets. And I just froze. I was like, the buckets? And he was like, yeah, we get one bucket of warm. I was like, y'all got to be kidding me with this. They're still doing it 50 years later. An uprising that, you know, is the subject of I don't know how many podcasts and how many Pulitzer Prize winning books later. It, it hasn't changed. And this is the point where I have to say that this is why I don't think prisons can be reformed. They have to be completely, like our entire system has to be completely rethought because what it will take for us to undo this uh, is the subject of report. We have coming out shortly. So stay tuned. Very, going to be very interesting report. I'm very happy for that report coming out because, I mean, not only as you stated, that they're still using buckets, but they have hot boxes that I'm still hearing that they're using in Alabama or Louisiana, where they put them in actual boxes that are extremely hot. And just think about the people that are in the South who have no air condition in Texas, in Arizona, where it gets over 107 degrees. Um, and I know at one point in time, Arizona actually had a camp outside where they had them sleeping outside. I mean, that is just so inhumane, the fact that you know, they don't want us to have our dogs in cages and they want us to take care of the animals, but then you're humans, you have them in cages, you have them in hot boxes, you're letting them use buckets of warm water for whatever use, which is really disgusting because of course, we you know, once you use it one time, if you're washing, then you're going to have dirty water. So what are you supposed to do for the rest of the month or the week? You know what I'm saying? I'm just grateful for the work that the Citizen Project has done and the the prison uh, initiative, just doing the research to kind of change the narrative of what we've been fed for so many years, that prison is prisons are needed and that people should go into prison if they supposedly committed a crime to rehabilitate themselves, which there's nothing about prison anywhere that helps anybody re rehabilitate themselves. I mean, I, I'm a huge, I mean, I'm a, so I, I always say to folks, you know, like I've never been to prison. That's not my story, but I have survived two violent crimes. And what I will say is that's not accountability to me. And not every survivor comes to the conclusion that I come to and I recognize that. But to me, that's not accountability. That's not making the people who harmed me better. That's not working on the antisocial tendencies that led the person to perpetrate things against me. Mm -hmm. That doesn't help that. Putting them in a more violent environment, a more traumatizing environment, is not going to ensure that this never happens again. It's just going to traumatize them. And people have to remember, the vast majority of people who go to prison are coming back to society. It does not behoove you to put them in a situation where they come home and they're going to be homeless because your housing laws don't allow them to get a home that doesn't allow them to get a job, that the environment that you put them in in the name of accountability is antithetical to physical, mental health and rehabilitation. This is bad for all of us. 
And if we could extreme sentence our way out of violence, we would have done it by now. We incarcerate more people than anywhere else in the world, including Russia and China, right? It's extraordinary how many people we have incarcerated and more than that, how many people we have incarcerated for life or virtual life sentences. When it comes to that, I think that because the other countries don't depend on body autonomy to make their per capita where it needs to be or to get the resources or the money that they need, when the United States practices off of using people's body autonomy for free labor. I mean, that's just how it was, how it was in the slavery days when the slaves were building, as they say, they, they built this state off the backs of their back, like literally. So it just translated over from the slavery days to the modern day slavery. And I need for people to understand that, like, it's no different than it was 400 years ago. Well, I mean, actually, I think it's I think it's become a little bit more complex, right? Because the federal government now, we actually have a campaign going because we're trying to stop the creation of a new prison in Kentucky. So go to sentencingproject.org and support that campaign. But this would be, I think, the fourth or fifth prison that this particular legislator has put in their district, mm-hmm. right? And why does one do that? Prisons are an industry. They require labor in order to run them. Yes. And the vast majority of prison officers are, find themselves in difficult positions in terms of jobs because prisons are used usually the major employer in these rural areas that we put prisons, right? Because most people don't want a prison like, you know, in like their like neighborhood, right? They don't want that. So prisons are way out in rural areas where we usually have a certain level of rural poverty. I mean, like nobody has thought to themselves, oh, I have vacation time. I'm going to pound Virginia where Red Onion is, right? Like that's not the thought process, right? right? You you think I'm going to the Catskills if you live in New York, you know, I'm going to Cornell. I'm not going to, you know, where Attica is, right? Like that's right. not the thought process. You know, I'm not going to the upper peninsula of Michigan where there's nothing. I was actually talking to a friend of mine who's incarcerated in upstate Michigan. And he said, yeah, we're so far up north, we're down south again. And I was like, woof, that's a that's a quote. We're talking about areas that are, for the most part, predominantly rural, predominantly white, predominantly low income. And this is a major source of jobs. And the longer people are incarcerated, the more job security there is. And if you don't have a college degree, it's unfair, but a lot of our industries have gone bye-bye, right? Like, you know, if you were somebody who worked with your hands, who was in that type of labor, a lot of that has disappeared. And so what's left is prisons. And so we see legislators who don't need another prison in their district asking, for the federal government to pay to build one because that provides jobs. And can't we just build something else? Can't we get on like building something else? I mean, you told me your district doesn't need anything else but a prison? But my thing is, why build another prison when there is a nationwide staff shortage in prisons? Because now I think from what I'm hearing here, that a lot of the people that are doing these jobs don't like the culture. Like, Because you have people now that are 
new millennials. So they're not used to this. So when they go into a prison, especially if they've never been to any type of prison and know what it's like, when they go there to work and they see the way that they're forcing them to treat human beings, a lot of them just like, I don't, I'm not doing this. This is what I'm not doing. And I'm gone. So a lot of them don't work nothing but like a week or so. So why would you build more prisons when you have a nationwide staff shortage? And this has been going on since COVID. Now we're past COVID and you still can't hire people to staff these prisons fully. So that's telling you something. I mean, every single MDOC that I talk to around the country is having a staffing issue. Um, when I was recently um, in the uh, at visiting a prison in Michigan, I swear to you, Sierra, the girl who patted me down had to be 12. Right. Like right. My, she, had, she had to be 12 years old. And I was like, actually, like the thing is, I'm not, I mean, obviously with what I do, I'm I'm pro-decarceration and all of these sorts of things. But to me, I actually find that disturbing on another level, right? That mm-hmm. this is the job that's available to this young person. They don't see any other opportunity in their community to like make their side money, right? You know, and I made my side money when I was growing up too. And it certainly wasn't in that type of environment. At that age, you are not prepared to deal with aging lifers who have severe physical illness. You are not prepared for the level of mental illness that presents in prison. You are not prepared for the environment, the deprivation, I mean, just the physical environment, right? If nothing else. And so this is something that just needs a massive cultural turnaround as our solution to job creation. Do you think that we could cultivate off the fact that they no longer have staff and that you've been trying to hire people? You've also, I know here we're supposedly giving pay raises, but that's still not bringing people in. So how can we capitalize off the fact that we have a United States shortage in correctional officers, which to me, they're using for their advantage because they're shutting them down and then they're crowding all the other prisons because they don't have enough staff to run. Which causes riots, which causes all sorts of environmental issues, which actually then make those prisons more dangerous, which makes people want to work at them even less. The answer to your question is, is a complicated one. What I will say say is that this is the perfect moment, given that there is at least some desire to take the prison population down by most departments of corrections based on this alone. And and advocates have always wanted the same thing, even if for different reasons, right? And so we have one of the largest elderly populations in the country of people who are incarcerated. And what we know statistically is that even those who have committed violent crime, after they've learned served these long extended sentences, they are the least likely to recidivate. Let them out. We do not need to pay millions and millions of dollars in medical costs, which is a state-based payment, right? Because Medicare, Medicaid, all of the federal programs do not cover incarcerated people. This is an opportunity for us to take that money out that we're currently spending, right? And then switch it to diversion programs. This is a perfect time for us to start to look at our sentencing laws and start to slow the pace at which we are sending people to prison, especially for these extended sentences. And when you and I first met, one of the conversations we started out on that I thought was really interesting, speaking of the South, is I'm currently working in Louisiana, right? And the thing that drives me crazy about Louisiana is that for first degree, right, that's first degree aggravated homicide you planned to kill someone, 
right? And this is proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, hopefully. Your choices are death penalty, life without the possibility of parole, second degree, unintentional homicide, or you were just physically present when somebody else committed a crime, no idea they were going to. Choice, life without the possibility of parole. So there is literally no distinction between the punishment for somebody who committed first degree aggravated homicide and somebody who was just present at the commission of a crime. Which to me contradicts you can't be convicted of a crime being at the wrong place at the wrong time because you can't. I mean, you would hope so. But even when I was talking to Senator Beth Mizell, who is the pro tem in Louisiana, she had a woman in her district that she met in when she went to do a prison visit who dropped her brother and his friend off at a party. You know, and she just thinks she's doing her brother a favor, giving him a ride. They go in and commit a murder. She's in prison. She never got out of the car. That's exactly what happened to my husband. Like, literally, he, you know, rode with somebody. They were going to a different location, made a stop before they got to that location. And he didn't get out the car. The other two people, girls, didn't get out the car. But the other two men did. So my husband and other three men are now, well, my husband got the most time. The other man got the less time who actually committed the crime. And that's felony murder. But the other two co-defendants that were outside with my husband only received accessory after the fact and got no time. Maybe because they were females and had kids. I don't know. But the fact that felony murder takes so many people's lives and the culpability in the murder, they don't even take consideration if you had any type of culpability. They just want to say, oh, well, you were acting in concert. But where's the proof of acting in concert? Or where's the actual sufficient proof yeah, there's um, no text messages to say that they had planned to be part of whatever crime had happened. Right. So felony murder is really interesting. And this is the thing that I think Americans need to understand. If you are me. with somebody who commits a crime, you could go to prison as though you committed that crime. No understanding that that was going to happen. Or you could think that and this is the one that actually really tugs at my heart, particularly for people who are like homeless, women who are in abusive and coercive situations, people who are dealing with extreme poverty. They think they're going to steal food, right? And that's wrong, right? You're not supposed to steal, but somebody kills somebody and they go to prison for life, right? And their intention was to take food, was to commit theft, not to commit murder. But because somebody committed a murder that they were present at, it's as if they committed a murder. And that, to me, takes all proportionality out of the system. I think it arguably takes all proportionality out of the system, which is why felony murder, which drags a lot of people to prison, unfortunately, including your husband, is one of the first sentencing things that we need to take a look at. That and domestic violence survivors. But to me, these are the lowest hanging, most obvious fruit that exists. My intention was to commit a robbery, to steal. It was not to kill anyone. And the fact that I'm around somebody who killed somebody does not make me a murderer. Right, right. It doesn't mean I had any any knowledge that this was going to happen. I could have just been writing and not know nothing. And they go in and come out. And it, It's literally the argument that you could control somebody else's actions, which every person in their basic common sense knows is not the case. Exactly. Exactly. And that is, so what can we do, especially here in the South? Because I know a lot of people 
you know, are in the South are have felony murder. And some of them are on capital murder, which, you know, my husband was coerced in the plea deal, the reason why he didn't get uh, capital murder. But what can we do? Because people are actually on death row for a crime they didn't even commit, had no culpability or anything. Like, it's sad and it takes down multiple people and it's ruined so many lives, including ours. And it has to be, I know that I think Colorado has redone their felony murder where, but they're still giving you 20 years. Like even if you had no A lot of states have redone their felony murder statutes. What they're not doing is being aggressive enough about it. That's number one. And number two, they're not putting retroactivity in that bill. So they can go back and look at felony murder cases that have already happened. And saying like, okay, we've decided that this law is not correct. It's not proportional. This is not how the law should be applied. We need to go back and look at everybody who's currently serving that that sentence. And a lot of states only want to do prospective bills, meaning going forward. They don't want to do retroactive bills looking backwards. And that is a massive problem. The fact of the matter is, is that felony murder, for the most part, needs to be stripped out of statute. Right. Either you can make the case that they committed a robbery, they were an accessory, they committed first or second degree homicide. You know, you don't get to just put somebody in prison because you think they knew a guy who did a thing. And that's a lot of them. That's that's a lot of cases. And then you have cases where you have prosecutors that say, oh, well, they committed this crime before. They were implicated in a crime like this before, so they had to do it. Or they've been doing this for so long, so this person had to have done this. And that's what happened in one of the cases that I was advocating for because he had done things prior. They were like, oh, well, he did this murder. Like, he did it. There was no evidence he did it. But they wanted to make it that he did it. What What is it they say? I mean, which is funny because we don't even think about the stock exchange that way, right? What is that economic saying that what um, past is no indication of future performance? Right. We'll say that about the stock exchange, but we can't say that about humans. Yeah. Okay. Somebody made a terrible decision once upon a time. I don't know a human that hasn't. And that is Um, like even them, even the ones that are prosecuting have made mistakes and and bad habits. So what? Because I dated a bad guy once upon a time, I'm forever doomed to that because I got a bad grade in one class. I'm forever doomed to that. I mean, this whole concept is illogical and it's designed as a scare tactic because somebody did something wrong one time that's who they are in a country that talks about forgiveness and various faith-based values for which forgiveness and second chances is so embedded in pretty much all of them our inability to actually live what we preach is sad It's really sad. And as I always say to prosecutors when I am talking to them or testifying before state legislature, I always say, you know, we have to get away from this concept on both sides that not getting it right is the end of the world because it's not. As a prosecutor, maybe at the time you thought you were doing the absolute right thing. That is what the evidence in, you know, in your life was telling you at that time. But when you have new evidence, when you know that this thing is not working, when we now know more about domestic violence and felony murder and diminished culpability, the more we know, the better we should do. 
And that means sometimes we have to go back and fix some things that we didn't get quite right. And that is not a big deal. Well, I think where that is is the fact that we've added politics into the justice system. I mean, because like when I was doing my last interview, if you notice, like when prosecutors are running, when they're running for a new reelection, their first thing that they say is, oh, well, I've prosecuted felony murders and I've prosecuted this. And, and I'm tough on that. crime and, you know, like, yeah. And that's what gets people to say, oh, well, yeah, let's vote for them and not, and especially the ones who haven't been directly impacted by the system. They don't understand that being tough on crime is not going to fix any of your crime. You have to resource your community to make sure that these people have what they need. Because if, think about it, if your community was thriving, would anybody really have to go out there and rob somebody? If everybody had everything equally, like equal housing and equal pay, will we be out here robbing? Because we, well, I mean, even, we, we even if we just had the baseline of what we need. So here's what I always say. That would actually tell you the people who have pathology, right? I'm just, I mean, I, I, I'm flippant when I say this, but I do think the sentiment behind it is true. I've said to people, you ever been at home in your flannel pants, in your socks, eating takeout, watching Netflix, thinking about committing a crime? No, no, that's not what you're doing. That's not the reality of the thing. You ever been like, you know, like, picking your kids toys up from around your like your house and you know you're blessed to have a roof over your head thinking to yourself about commit like no like you ever been at the lovely playground in your neighborhood pushing your kid on a swing giving them a fruit roll-up thinking about committing a crime no you know that is (laughs) right you know what I'm saying like you know I have never been at my stove blessed to have food, cooking it in a pot, thinking about committing a crime. That's not how that works. It's when you have been put into situations where your survival is on the line. And for a lot of young people, and young people are, if you look back at the stats, the amount of people who went to prison before they had a fully developed brain is staggering, is absolutely staggering that we throw children away. The fact that we can say you're at, at a 15 year old, a 10 year old, a six year old to say, you're gonna spend the rest of your life in prison and you haven't even mentally developed to understand. The thing is, you haven't actually life. mentally developed until you're 25, 26, 27 in some instances, right? I think back on myself in my twenties, I've crossed over into the, th- I've crossed the Rubicon into my thirties, right? I I mean, like, you know, I am a person who has led a privileged and blessed life for the most part, right? And I had to fish so much trash out of my personality. You know, when you're in your 20s, you are just dumb and you are doing dumb things for the most part, you know, and and there's no one alive who hasn't done it. Like, you know, something that was out of character because they were young and they were stupid. You know, and it's whether you were drinking underage, you know, it's whether, you know, you were just doing things that were reckless. I mean, I don't know any men in their 30s who streak with their friends. I know a lot of guys in college who did. Right. Exactly. Or even the fact that the people with mental health, like America has dropped the mental health ball as well. You know, like I was. I don't think we ever picked it up, to be quite honest with you. I don't think we even picked that (laughs) ball up. I don't think we know where the ball is. I think the ball is missing in a bush somewhere and we stop looking for it. Like, sorry to correct you, but that is my personal opinion. I, mean, I don't think I, we have the ball to drop. 
It's true because I did a, a pod, an interview podcast with a guy who interviews serial killers. And he said one of the serial killers said that he was on this medicine, this mental health medicine that made like his, he had voices in his head. And he kept telling them, this medicine is making me crazy. And they're like, oh, no, you're fine. You're fine. So he goes and he commits like really heinous crimes. And as soon as he go to prison, they take him off that medicine and he's fine. So now he's in prison for the rest of his life and committed a heinous crime because he was on some type of psycho psych, psychiatric med that made his symptoms worse. And so we have a lot of how that. many people who've committed mass shootings that we find out after the fact, they literally went and go, I'm not well, I'm going to do something terrible. Please help me. And nobody listened. And, and we were like, well, we can't help you. And then we're just sorry afterwards. And that's not good enough. No. The average person during COVID, everyone will tell you the mental health systems were overrun by people who had access to them. Imagine what was happening to all of the people who didn't. Isolation is something that makes people crazy. And we know this, which is why we have to end the use of solitary confinement, which is why most of the world has ended the use of solitary confinement. It makes you crazy. And we were in comfortable environments, many of us, of our choosing and still struggled. So we're talking about a privileged class of people who were struggling because of the pandemic and isolation. Imagine what it's like to do that on a concrete floor with a metal rack with insufficient food, with no pay, with limited access to the people you love in an environment where many people are either incorrectly treated or not treated at all for various types of addiction and mental illness. The list goes on there mm -hmm. where you are unsafe and we're asking you to be a better person. Here's the crazy part to me. So many of them do it. They do. They become master's degree holders. Like my friend Jamie Mead. He's getting a master's of divinity. He is closer to God, a better person, a more educated person, a leader of a national life or association. And we're just going to leave him there. Yeah, and we have a coworker named Kerwin Pittman who spent over a year in solitary confinement. And we asked him, like, how'd you make it through? He said, I read books. And he said that when they would come in my cell, I would tear up my cell. So they couldn't tear it up. What could they do if I've already tore it up? They 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 just would go past me. So he said that, you know, by him embedding his mind in books and then doing things to basically already say, well, you can't do this. I've already done it. I've already tore up my cell. So you can't come in here going through my cell. You know what I'm saying? And now he's on the governor's task force. He runs his own nonprofit. He's like, he's doing a lot. And I mean, you would never. Oh, no, I mean, they come out and do incredible things. One of my yeah. friends, he works for a sheriff's office. Another one is getting a PhD at U Michigan. You know, one of them is like, you know, running a nonprofit and works for like the city of Grand Rapids. You know, I mean, like, you know, they're out here like they are the best citizens. They're running our harm reduction centers in certain states. They're getting in the way of youth. Our violence interrupters in Washington, D.C. are predominantly formally incarcerated. My fellow at the sentencing project, when I was interviewing him, formally incarcerated, came home on second look. I said to him, I was like, how many books do you think you read in the, I believe it was about 22 years he spent in prison before he got his second chance? 
He said, probably about a thousand. How many people do you know who have read a thousand books? My husband's probably there. And my husband has come up with a nonprofit incarcerated behind walls. Like, and this is why we're doing. Oh, yeah, they start organizations. They run. I mean, they don't let lifers have programming. So they create their own. I mean, I don't know if you've seen the movie since I've been down, but it's about Washington State after they abolished parole. This group of lifers basically created this entire curriculum that they learned how to teach because they wouldn't allow the funding for them to have programming. So they did it themselves. And it's crazy because you see a guy who's like, I think he's like a, he was part of a former Latin gang and a guy who's part of a former black gang and a guy who was part of a former white supremacist gang. And they're all, they all teach together now. And we have and if a that is not that I work with right. who actually wrote up a bill for lifers that we're trying to get support now. I mean, imagine being in prison and trying to write a bill with, because we didn't have no law library. We just got a law library last year. Trying to write a bill with no law library and actually come up with the bill and get some type of support so that lifers don't have to deal to get rid of life without parole. I mean, you have some really, really intelligent people that are incarcerated. And so- you know they, what? Sierra, tell them they don't have to write a bill. I'll write it for them. They can just tell me what they would like it to say. And that's one of the things that the sentencing project does very frequently. They don't have to try to work that out. You know, we have lawyers out here who are ready and prepared to help. And I think that's the thing that a lot of lifers need to know is that organizations like the sentencing project, like you're not forgotten. I'm just working my way through the state. Are you feeling unheard after a negative encounter with a law enforcement officer, sheriff, or correctional officer? Visit the Emancipate NC website to report your encounter. Any individual can use the Emancipate NC form to report a police encounter, upload video, photographs, or other evidence, and share their information with the U.S. Today's National Police Misconduct Database. Share it with your friends and family members and community. Our communities have the wisdom and the data we need to keep us safe from rude police. By crowdsourcing this information, we will be able to analyze departmental trends, mobilize campaigns for accountability, and file more effective litigation. Remember, we keep us safe. Sponsored by Emancipate NC. Well, North Carolina definitely needs that help because I'm telling you, we like we have so many criminal justice bills, like we have a parole bill that's, but they don't look at it because they just don't believe that people. Are, we've heard them say, "Oh, well, you can't just let people out. You can't just let children out. They've done this. They like they have this mindset that you can't just let people out because they supposedly committed a violent crime." And you have a lot of people who haven't even committed a crime but were falsely accused of a crime. Being so stiff. Also, this isn't even just about innocence. Innocence we should look at, right? Because we sent a lot of innocent people to death row. We sent a lot of innocent people to prison. I have many friends who are exonerees who had decades of their lives taken from them for a crime they didn't commit, right? That's a very real thing. However, I'm in the business of talking about people who are guilty and how long they should actually be punished. Because if the argument is accountability to victims, and the argument is responsibility and rehabilitation. Life sentences are antithetical to that. So just stop. Well, first, my thing is, why is the state requiring? Why, why isn't it, if, if it's the victim, if you're advocating for the victim as part of the state, 
why aren't you asking the victim's family? Well, what would you like? Because I know there's been a lot of victims' families in North Carolina that didn't want want the, the person to get life, but they still gave them life anyway. Or they didn't want them to get death oh. row, but they still gave them death row anyway. So when do we come to the fact of saying, state, you can't run everything, that, that you wasn't harmed. It was the victim, and you're just representing them as an advocate. So why not add them in as a part of the restorative justice? And I think that's why restorative justice is so important well, in every community. Well, I mean, we need restorative justice, and that is for sure. But here's the other thing. Yes, you need to take into account the impact on the survivor of the crime, right? However, as the state, your job, you are not a direct representative of anybody in this situation. What you are a direct representative of is what is in the best interest of the state, the interest of justice. Justice should be accurate, it should be proportional, and it should be in a line with what we scientifically know about threat and danger and rehabilitation. And what we know about those things is that life sentences don't work. I have, but I mean, on top of that, right, which should be like their 101 job. That should be obvious to them, right? But on top of that, I've had friends who are survivors of attempted murder who got threatened that if they didn't testify against this person, they were going to add charges and send them to federal prison. Right? I've had friends. She's literally the victim in the situation. She got threatened. Yeah, I've been in that How situation. is that being for victims? It's not. I mean, because when I went, I, I, did, I went on a domestic violence issue. And so I was the one that called the DA's office and was like, you know, I don't want him to get any jail time because I feel like, what is jail going to do? It's not going to, you know, it's not going to make it any better. And honestly, I just want to drop the charges. And she's like, well, if you don't come, I'm like, well, I don't feel safe coming. Because, you know, a lot of times when you're in a domestic violence situation, going to court and being in there with your accuser makes them mad. And not only was I in the courtroom, but he was like three rows behind me. So I didn't feel safe at all. So I go back and I talk to the DA and I'm like, well, I don't want him to get jail time. He's like, well, what do you want? I was like, I want him to get a mental health evaluation and I want him to do some type of community service. And so... They did allow that to happen, but you have some DAs who are like, no, you're going to testify. And if you don't testify, the, the charges will be dropped and we'll bring charges against you. And, and so that's, that's not fair because you should still be able to dictate what you want to happen when it happened to you, not them, but they want to take it all. But I mean, here's the other thing about that. So I'm in Oklahoma right now, another state that's, it's not, it's not technically Southern, it's Midwest. But, you know, I feel like they they would have a great deal in common in terms of approach. And we're working on a Domestic Violence Survivor Justice Act. I'm talking about women and men who've gone to prison for decades up to life for literally defending their lives. One of the women we're featuring in our ads right now, Key Brianna, she she got stabbed in her pregnant stomach. Mm. The same thing happened to my friend Susan Brown in Michigan. An abusive partner tracked them both down. They ended up in a knife fight while they're heavily pregnant, both end up with knives in their pregnant stomach. And because they defended themselves, not intending to kill somebody, but trying to save them and their unborn kid's life, they're both in prison. They're both in prison. Susan's in prison for life without the possibility of parole. Key Brianna is in life, is, is in prison. She has to serve 20 years behind bars, and then she is under supervision of the state for the rest of her life. 
All because she was trying to protect herself and her unborn baby. Like that. All because she was trying to protect herself and her unborn baby. And I'm telling you, I have seen case after case after case of this. Felony murder. A woman in Oklahoma gets a gun put to her head. And he says, if you don't go rob this store, I'm going to shoot you. She says no. He beats her with that gun horribly in front of her children. A week later, she thinks she's going with him to a job interview. She has a one-month-old in her arms. He goes into the shop, locks the door, robs the joint. She's in prison. What did say? Felony murder? That good old felony murder rearing its head again. Right? So, you know, this is the thing where I'm just sort of like, I mean, not only do, would I argue that we're, that our legal system doesn't help survivors, I would argue that our system actually has a hard time identifying survivors. Doesn't know what a survivor is. Doesn't know what somebody innocent is. It doesn't know all it sees is supposedly justice, and it's not fair justice. It's supposed to be that the prosecutors and the defense attorneys are supposed to hunt for the truth together. But you don't have that because prosecutors automatically just get one side track and they think that you're guilty. Like it's not like, oh, well, this person, it's a possibility they didn't commit this crime, so we need to drop this charge. Why? Because America hasn't tailored them to that. Like, what prosecutor have you heard say, oh, well, I didn't have enough evidence, so I dropped it, and it's okay? Well, I mean, it becomes about winning, not about what's right, right? So I can say that I should be reelected because I won these many things. I'd be like, no, I should win because I am exact and nuanced, exactly as the law should be, because I am actually taking the time and the energy to determine what our limited resources should actually be used on. That is the election that I would like to see. But it's also why, even with some of the like more known progressive prosecutors, they stay in office. I mean, they have done everything to get rid of Larry Krasner. I mean, they have done everything to get rid of, and they just can't do it, right? Like, I mean, they criticize this man about everything. They make him responsible for things he's not responsible for. They're like, well, there were shootings over the weekend. I'm like, Larry didn't shoot anybody. <laughs> right. Right. But Why, but, how is that him? Like, what are you talking about? But that's what they want to do. They want to change the narrative back to how, they, how they've how they already displayed the narrative as we have to be tough on crime and people that commit sin, who commit crimes have to go to jail for God knows how long. You know, I don't need a dumb, muscly meathead. I, you know, lawyers, I want somebody who is smart, nuanced and accurate. Mm -hmm. And this is why we have to fund our public defender's office because they are the ones that is responsible for the marginalized community. And so many people depend on public defenders, but because they are so underfunded and understaffed is why our people can't get correct representation. Now the state has everything they need. They have experts, they have many assistant DAs that help them. Like they have everything they need. But on the state side, when it comes to public defenders, they're struggling. They don't have enough money to get experts. They don't have enough money to do the correct investigations. And this is where you they don't have enough lawyers. That's before you get to any of that. Right. I they mean, don't have enough lawyers. Here's here's what a lot of people don't get about supporting public defense. Whether you think you should be tough on crime or not, the people who usually have that mindset are people who are very supportive of constitutional rights, the freedom of Americans. Public defenders are one of the most essential constitutional actors 
that exist in our system. They are the people, and this is what I always say. I'm like, look, whether you, whoever you like, it doesn't matter. What we're talking about is the most essential thing that Americans value, which is freedom. And the inability of the state to act on you wrongly or falsely or disproportionately, right? Because that is what we went to war, I mean, for, right? We didn't want the state to be the ultimate king actor in our lives. We wanted the right to push back against the state when the state is wrong, unjust, whatever. Give me liberty or give me death, right? This is the American ethos. And if you believe in that, then the people who stand in the way of the state being able to erroneously charge you, they are the people who are upholding that constitutional standard, that ethos. And the fact that we won't pay them enough money to take care of their families is insane. Very. And it allows the state to do the very thing that you don't want the state to do, right? In, in this, even in this more conservative ethos, right? For them to be a tyrant. And so if you are against tyranny, then you should be for public defenders. Yep. And that's why it's important for the community because I don't think the community really understands the importance of public defenders. Um, and you just, I mean, don't think it can happen to you. The state could decide that you're the one, they have the ability to freeze your assets, and you will be reliant upon an overworked, underfunded public defender. To represent your life. This is your life we're talking about. And this is, this is the thing we value the most as Americans. In states with the death penalty, yes, you are quite literally potentially talking about your life. But you are also talking in every other circumstance about your freedom. The thing that Americans value the most, I think probably across all races, creeds, and political ideations. And this is why a lot of people's constitutional rights are violated because the public defense can't, they don't have the resources to defend you to the to the max because they're overworked, underpaid, and they don't have enough resources. And they I barely have the ability in a lot of jurisdictions to, to represent you to the minimum. Hunter Parnell, who you should meet at some point, his, actually he also runs a podcast called Defenseless. We've have done you really? one. We've done one. Two weeks oh, ago. I love that. Okay, I love that. So he did this great episode on Michigan's public defenders, right? And up until only about like the last eight or nine years, Michigan really didn't have an indigent defense, a public defender service. At one point, I don't quote, don't quote me exactly, but I think they said something to the effect of there was like one, there was one public defender overseeing like 30 courtrooms and it just became like a plea system, right? There was no such thing as real defense. And that is, and the reason that they got sued and the reason that they won was because it's unconstitutional. Well, you know, North Carolina, the state, in, the, in the rural counties, we don't have public defender's office. We have contracted. And he said that the contracted, they might get paid, like, maybe, he said here, maybe $55 an hour, which if you think about it, that's not a lot at all for a lawyer. So, for a lawyer? Are you kidding me? I mean, like, there are patent attorneys that charge 1000 an hour. Yes. Right? <laughs> like, I mean, and what it costs to do that career, what it costs to pay back that education for a lot of folks no, I mean, that's not sufficient at all. 
And it certainly is not like they're getting paid $55 an hour, but they're resourced in order to make sure that whatever it is they need to defend against, they can have those expert witnesses, those ballistic tests, those whatever, whatever, whatever it is that they need. And that's why we and that's a problem. And that's why we worked with Vera, who came in to a couple of our rural counties in Wilson. And we were actually able to sit down with the DA and the Sheriff's Department, and they agreed that they had too many people just sitting in the county jails who had like very minimal crimes, like stealing property, and were there for months because they couldn't get a public defender because they had to depend on a private attorney, which we know. And they couldn't afford bail. Right. And of course, and you had people who hadn't even seen the the attorney because they were private and they had, they were going to take care of their clients that they were paying them before they come to somebody who who was indigent. So they were just sitting there. And so we were actually able to decrease the population, the jail population in Wilson, just by working with the DA and getting them to, to release them on, you know, bails where they could pay them. But that's where you have in a lot of rural counties where people are just sitting in jails waiting to see an attorney and they don't have one because they don't have a public defender's office. I mean, and so I I completely, I I couldn't agree more. And that's unconstitutional. The state being able to hold you permanently on an accusation, you are not convicted of anything. Well, that's the thing. You're supposed to be innocent. That is every American's nightmare. The state can just say you did something and they can hold you indefinitely. And you lose all everything. Just sitting in jail, people lose their life. Say like they lose literally everything just sitting in jail for two weeks. Their home, their job, their kid, their car, it's done. You're done. And then the state wants to tell you that you're wrong because you no longer have a job, a house, and a car. Like, look, I had one before you accused me of something that you hadn't yet proven. Or you're wrong because you can't afford an attorney, a real attorney. (laughs) It's your fault. You can't afford right. it. You um, have a city. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So any bill to support public defense, uh, you can count me. Count me in. And and that's why I'm urging a lot of my community members to start looking at your city's budget. It's important for you to understand what the city is doing with your money because the power of the people is to go advocate to say, hey, I see what you're doing with my tax dollars and I want to go here, here, here. And we were actually able to do that in Guilford County in Greensboro, where they were holding like $9 million aside for the Guilford County Jail to hire officers, and they haven't hired officers in two years. So we advocated for that money to go to teachers and to the school and pay your school bus drivers because they they weren't getting money. So it's important for you to understand that these are your taxpaying dollars and that you have to say so as long as you are on what they're doing, you have to say so for them to allocate that money. But if we're not going to be in charge of what they're doing with our money, they're going to do whatever with exactly what they've been doing for years. Because we felt like, oh, well, they're politicians. They know what to do with our money. They're going to put it in the right place. And they're not at all by any means. No, I mean, not at all. And also, as I've said a million times, and this has been said by many people, budgets are moral documents. I can look at a budget and I can tell what you value. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's why I encourage people to look at your sheriff's department's uh, budget. It breaks down exactly what they're doing with the money. It breaks. It tells you what they asked for that year. It tells you exactly what they spent it on. Like our sheriff's department bought a whole bunch of Mustangs with different colors. Like have every every kind of Mustang in every different color. Like literally, that's what he did. What with do a lot we need of Mustangs for? Right. 
bought tanks and they can't even use these cars to transport people because they're small. Like they're just no, they can't even, they don't have a back seat. They don't, they're not. Yeah. What are you talking? That is insane. My point. Bought tanks. I mean, but you know, it's, 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 it's not, it's not surprising, but it's insane. And they actually just built another juvenile jail or prison in the county that my mom's in. And I didn't even know that they were building that until it's up. And now they're trying to hire people and they can't even hire people for the juvenile. That's where, that's where, that's where children belong. Prison. Yeah. Because we actually really didn't even have anywhere for them to go. We were putting them with adults at first. We were putting our children in adult prisons. And so we finally got one prison that was all children. But I mean, the prison was old because a bunch of adults were there. And now you built a new one. Why not make sure our children, instead of putting them in prison, we're not putting them in programs. We're not giving them the resources that they need, making sure that they're okay at home. Like, why are we, we, we already know teachers could tell you who's not getting what they need and why isn't there someone there that makes sure they get what they need? I mean, what do you expect a poor, neglected, hungry child to do? That's why it's important to resource your communities. Nobody in the community should be hungry. Nobody. If you teach children from infancy, that they are worthless to you, that they don't matter, that their pain and their hunger doesn't matter. You have created the actor who doesn't care about you because actually you have victimized these children from childhood. And, you know, I said this when I was talking to the New York State Legislature because um, I was an elected commissioner in Washington, D.C., and uh, my big fight was over homelessness, actually. And I said, why are we pushing these people around the city? Let's get them a house. Keep them where they are. Get them food. Get them bathroom. Get them sanitation. Get them clothes. And let's get them a house. That's a more difficult process. It's a longer process. But it's the process that actually solves our problem. Right? right. And so when it comes to kids, I'm just really wondering why it is we can't use that money we did to put them in a cage to get them a therapist or a decent place to live or whatever oh, it is. Whatever's going on in the family, like get the family some counseling, get them the resources that they need so that the child, child care. Like, that's what I'm saying. I mean, I, I remember when I was growing up and we had villages, like my grandma would watch everybody's kids just so that the mother could go work, especially if she was a single mom. She'd be like, bring the baby over. She would feed the kids. And by the time the mom got home, the babies would sleep and they could go on. We need more of that. Like what happened to that? We don't have that anymore at all. And, and I think that they've torn down our villages. They've taken all of our resources and communities and put them in the prisons and put them in things that is not helping us succeed as the United States. And this is why we are where we are today, where we feel like prison is the answer for everything. We are using prisons for mental health. We're using prisons for people who have drug problems. We're using prison for people who are homeless. Like everything. <laughs> and what, how is that the answer? The answer is it's maybe not. It's quite clearly not because if that policy solution was working, homelessness would be resolved. Our, you know, we wouldn't have crime. You know, we would all the things that they say that this is doing, which it's clearly not doing. Has it done since '94? Before '94, right? You know, so you know, I think that you know. Anyway, I think that's a good note to 
to end on because it's just like, yeah, this is not working. But thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really um, thrilled that I got to talk to you about all of this. And I really hope that uh, we get to do some work together in North Carolina. I am um, excited. Thank you so much for just agreeing to be on the show and just, you know, just informing the people that we have to do better. and We all have to work together to to sustain the environment that we want to be in. We have to do it together. It can't just be in silos. And that's that's what I always say. We always work in our own silos and we got to stop working exactly. in silos and work together to end this matter. And this is a United States problem. So whatever state you're working in, you should be connected to the advocates and others because we are all pushing against the exact same problem. Yes. Um, and if people don't believe you, send them to the sentencingproject.org. We have a paper on just about everything, including felony murder. You do. <laughs> All right, Alex. Thank you. So thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Your host, Sierra Cobb. Take care. Take care.